Let's see. Oh, there we go. That must... There we go. Sorry about that. Smooth opening here. You know, it's all downhill from here, I guess, right? We'll see what happens here. But yeah, we're, we're starting a new series here um, for Advent um, on the mothers of Jesus. Pastor Josh had this phenomenal idea, like, let's preach through the women in the lineage of Jesus. I was like, yes, let's do it. This is so exciting. Until I I actually read the text and was like, wow, this is going to be a this is going to be a very interesting series. And so uh, we're going to be going through um, four of the women in the genealogies of Jesus this year. And, and Tamar is the first woman in that uh, genealogy. I think when we look at the lineage of Jesus, we often focus on the men, Abraham and David and some of the great patriarchs. Uh, of the tribe, but during this uh, this year, we're going to be focusing on the leading women in uh, the lineage of Jesus. And as we look more closely, we're going to see that these are stories of beauty and brokenness. They're stories of suffering and salvation. They're stories of bold faith in the face of impossible circumstances. They're stories of scandal and vindication. And this morning, we get to talk about Tamar. Uh, the first woman in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Three, her story is recorded in Genesis 38. And if you were following along with the scripture reading, it's pretty jacked up, right? This is pretty intense uh, reading here. In fact, I don't know if I need to put like a parental guidance uh, reading on just the scripture reading this morning. Um, God putting people to death. We have a teenage widow, all kinds of abuse, injustice, prostitution, and that's just the first 19 verses, right? I mean, we're just kind of getting warmed up with the story. One pastor called this the most awkward passage to preach about in the Bible. And uh, for some reason, I volunteered to preach on it here. Uh, but I want you, what I want you to see is this is actually fits perfectly with the season of Advent, where we anticipate our king coming to bring shalom into all of the chaos around us, where we celebrate the light coming into the darkness, and where we search our own hearts and look maybe at some of the darkness that might be there as well. Advent isn't a season of perfect Instagrammable moments or hallmark memories. It's a season where we reckon with the brokenness of the world around us and our need for a true king to bring his perfect peace and justice to set the world finally right. And so it's appropriate that we would take on a story with some significant brokenness into it as we embark upon this Advent season. And maybe it's worth saying uh, to some of you, you know, maybe this is your perfectly Instagrammable moment. You've had tons of fun with friends and family and football and all those wonderful American uh, pastimes, and that's great. But maybe for you, Advent is a more difficult season. Maybe as you step into holidays, spend time with friends and family, right, you enter into some difficult memories and different experiences and difficult times. And so, Hopefully this series would be an opportunity to see the Bible doesn't sugarcoat life, the troubles, the challenges, the difficulties, the pains that we all experience living in a fallen world. So this morning, we're going to start our Advent series with a tragic story. We're going to see here in Genesis 38, verses 1 through 11, um, we start with a story of tragedy. We see, secondly, a desperate plan unfolding, as was read about already in our scripture reading. And the story concludes with a double 
uh, blessing. And the big question I want us to be wrestling with and considering this morning, how can God make something beautiful out of this broken story? Or maybe to put it more directly, right? how does God make beautiful things out of our broken stories? I think that's what this text is all about. It's inviting us to reflect on God's beautiful design in our broken story. So let's pray as we dive into our text this morning that God might meet us here in this beautiful story, beautiful and broken story. And so, Father, we don't always know how to make sense of the darkness in our own stories, much less the darkness in the world around us, all of the uh, things that are just not the way they're supposed to be in this fallen world. So this morning, would you help us to remember that you are in the business of making beautiful things out of our broken lives, out of our broken stories. You are a God of redemption, and we get to celebrate that this morning uh, as a church. As we go through this Advent season, we remember that you didn't stay up in your heavenly throne, uh, sitting uh, in the wonders and glories of heaven, but you came down into the messiness of our lives Um, into the uh, brokenness of our stories, um, and into a world that is uh, so many times a mess. And so we thank you for Jesus' willingness to come down into our broken lives and our broken stories. And I pray throughout this series, God, that you would be doing uh, that very thing in the midst of our lives and our congregation. God, that you would be doing stories of redemption in the midst of, of our broken lives. And we pray this all. Uh, for your glory, and we pray it in your name. Amen. So we had to start with a tragic story this morning, and so if you're following along in Genesis 38 um, in your uh, scripture Bible, you will be able to follow um, right along with it and uh, not miss any of the details. But in Genesis 38, we pick up the story of Judah, the great-grandson of Abraham, the grandson of Isaac, and the son of of Jacob, right? The father of the 12 tribes who are going to make up the children of Israel. But Judah is not off to a very promising start. In the previous chapter, he just masterminded the plan to sell his annoying younger brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt and then fake his untimely death. So, you know, as a teenager, he's not off to a particularly great start. And then here in chapter 38, he is behaving badly. Once again, he makes friends with a Canaanite named Hira, leaves his family, and goes to live with the Canaanites, people God had explicitly told his people not to associate with because they are going to totally entangle you in lots of really um, bad habits and bad patterns of living. And so while he's there, he, he sees a woman, takes her as a wife, and immediately has three children. Um, the abruptness with which the narrator shows a sense, this is a very blunt kind of guy. He just sees something he wants, he just goes for it, takes this woman, has children by her, and all of a sudden he has three children, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And the narrator presents Judah as pretty impulsive, right? He's just doing what feels good. He's a teenager, maybe 17, living the, living the dream, just kind of doing what feels good, hanging out with his buddy, you know, you know, finds himself a girl that looks attractive, gets married, has children. And we don't really, the story that we're involved in today doesn't happen until these children grow up. So we fast forward maybe 
uh, 15, 16, 17 years. That's when people got married in the ancient Near East, uh, really quickly after puberty. So as his oldest son grows up, um, Judah finds a Canaanite wife from him, and we're introduced to, uh, for the first time, to Tamar, who is going to be the protagonist in our story this morning. She's a teenager. Uh, she's a Canaanite from that country, you know, maybe 14, 15, 16. Um, they married super early in that culture. And sadly, this is not going to be a happy marriage for her, right? Ur is so wicked that God himself puts him to death. Like this is the first time God has directly intervened to kill someone in human history that we, that we at least know of in the Bible. And so the situation is already looking fairly bleak. So here is Tamar, you know, she's a teenager. She's already a young widow. And as a single woman in the ancient Near East, she couldn't just get a job and there's no government, you know, safety net here. So she is in a particularly vulnerable position, right? She could either remarry outside the family, lose her inheritance and all of those things that would have been associated with her former family, or the brother of the deceased husband could marry her and provide heirs for his sister-in-law in a practice called Leverite marriage, which to us seems super weird, right? Obviously, uh, but the first option of remarriage would have been difficult because widows were less, had less prospects for remarriage than is the case today, right? If you had already been married, you were not exactly like the pick of the crop out there. It was easy for you to just get kind of tossed aside in that culture. So Leverite marriage emerged um, as a custom to actually help vulnerable women in a culture where they would have been neglected, where they would have been destitute, where they would have had no prospects or no options, right? They're you know, nearest kinsmen could, in fact, you know, marry them, bring them into their family, give them children so they could have prospects, they could have hope, they could have future. In fact, this was a justice issue, right? It was God's means of protecting and providing for the vulnerable. It was a social safety net in the ancient Near East that allowed vulnerable women to receive the protection that they needed to have the future that they needed. It provided these widows with children to take care of them, carry on the family name, receive the family inheritance, and uh, be able to pass on land to the next generation. It kept women from being utterly destitute or falling into prostitution, which happened so much in that ancient Near Eastern culture. And so with that context set, as the patriarch of his family, Judah insists that Tamar's brother-in-law, Onan, marry his sister-in-law so that she can have children, right? This is her way to carry on the name, the lineage. This is her future. This is her hope. But Onan does not want to share the inheritance, right? With his oldest brother out of the way, he would receive the firstborn share of his father's inheritance. Judah was a very wealthy man. And so Onan is like, I'm not going to share my inheritance with this girl. Instead, um, he decides that he's going to marry her, at least, you know, follow through with the practice of Leverite marriage. Um, but he agrees to do it, but he makes sure that Tamar never gets pregnant, right? He, he takes steps here, as you can see from the text, to ensure that she will, in fact, never get pregnant. So Tamar finds herself in an even more desperate situation where she's being used and abused by her brother-in-law. And God does not look kindly on Onan's deplorable behavior and puts him to death as well. So, you know, strike number one, you know, Tamar's first husband struck down by God. 
a brother-in-law comes in to fulfill his duties and his obligation. He just uses an abuser. He's dead. And so here is Tamar, a widow now twice over. Um, and to make matters worse, instead of realizing just how wicked her, his sons are, Judah thinks that this must be Tamar's fault. She is bad luck. So he sends her back to her father's house and tells her to wait for his youngest son to grow up and marry her. But the narrator lets us know he has no intention of actually following through with this promise. So she's trapped in a hopeless situation. She can't remarry because she's technically betrothed the Jewish youngest son. She's a widow uh, without any support. She has a wicked husband, a wicked brother-in-law, and a negligent father-in-law. And now she is back living at home in her parents' basement. Okay, so you probably didn't have a basement, but she's back home, right, with the parents. Not a great situation to find yourself as a teenage girl. And as the years pass, she watches all of her prospects slip away and is headed towards destitution and ruin, right? I told you, this is a tragic story. One of the most tragic, if not the most tragic in the whole Bible, right? I hope you never find yourself in such a tragic situation situation. Um, but sadly, uh, we haven't come as far as we might think in our very you know, modern and enlightened culture, right? In our culture today, statistics hold one in four women experience some kind of sexual abuse today. And the past couple of years have been a particular reckoning for our culture, right? The Me Too movement has revealed powerful figures, right? who are taking advantage of people under their care. We can talk about people like Larry Nassar, you know, trusted, you know, gymnast and, you know, Michigan State coach. Or we can look at people like Harvey Weinstein in the movie industry that just serially abused women in today in our modern enlightened culture. So this is not just an ancient Near Eastern problem, right? This is a human problem that we're dealing with in the church has not been immune to this, right? The church is having its own reckoning right now as well. Not only is there in the Me Too movement, there's now the Church Too movement, right? As a lot of powerful pastors have been caught behaving very badly as well. I mean, just recently, you know, Bill Hybels, you know, inappropriate relationships, you know, Carl Lentz, and the list could go on and on. It's not just a Roman Catholic problem, right? This is, again... This is something that we are wrestling with and reckoning with in the church as well. And the church, especially, right, we should know better, right? The church, you know, needs to be a place of refuge and safety, especially for the most vulnerable. It's an outrage that churches have harbored and protected predators, right? That that kind of behavior has been tolerated in the church of Jesus Christ. This is a justice issue and we need to treat it as such. It is so important that God puts Onan to death for it. Stories like Tamar's remind us, sadly, that abuse happens at the hand of wicked people. And I've walked with my wife over the last 18 years as she's dealt with the sexual abuse she experienced as a teen and a preteen. And it's not the end of her story. And certainly, if you have been there and walked through that journey, it's certainly not the end of your story either. And it's not the end of Tamar's story either in this narrative. So Tamar's situation is tragic. What is she going to do? In verses 12 through 19, she comes up with what could only be described as a very desperate and unorthodox 
plan here. And so as we read forward and we saw in the scripture reading, when her father-in-law's wife dies, after many years, she realizes Judah has no intention of marrying her to his youngest son. She needs to do something or she is going to be utterly destitute. And so after a period of mourning, Judah goes out with his best buddy to the sheep shearing festival and she sees finally an opportunity. Sheep shearing would have been a time of great celebration, right? This is a time when they're bringing in, right, all the bounty of the wool that they're going to be bringing in. This would have been time for food, celebration, drinking, lots of partying. And in Canaanite culture, also a bonus, you had shrine prostitution. And so the fertility gods liked it if you had lots of sex during this period as well. So you add that in, and it was kind of a pretty toxic stew here. So desperate times call for desperate measures. Knowing Judah's character, Right? She dresses up as a cult prostitute and waits for him to return from the festival. Probably a little, uh, little uh, probably drank a little bit extra over the course of the festivities. And true to form, he sees her dressed up as a prostitute and immediately propositions her. Uh, but he doesn't have any money on him handy for this process. So she takes Judah's signet ring, cord, and staff as collateral. This would be like taking his driver's license and credit card stay. It's like taking his ID, all of the goods on this guy. And who knows what he's even thinking at this point. But through this desperate plan, she gets pregnant. And so there's a crazy turn of events here in the story. And we pick up the story here uh, in verses 20 through 26, which we didn't read in our scripture reading yet. So I want to pick it up for you. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at a name, Naam, at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been there. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, there's no cult, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and did not find her. So Judah is already in danger of being the laughingstock of the community. About three months later, Judah was told, this is verse 24, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So there's a rather dramatic situation here. Wait a minute, bring her out. And let her be burned? Um, This is something of a disturbing double standard, right? Judah can sleep with whoever he wants, but if his daughter-in-law gets pregnant, he wants her burned alive, right? This would have been extreme even by this time period, which was certainly less gentle towards, you know, marital infidelity at that time. But this was extreme even by those measures. To be burned alive was, you know, the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. Like people that practice witchcraft or divination or the most, you know, perverse sorts of things. Clearly, Judah still blames her for the death of his sons and sees confirmation that he's been right about her all along. She's bad news, and he wants to get rid of her and sees this as an opportunity. She's been caught in the act. This is his opportunity to get rid of her once and for all, for out of his life and out of his story. But as she is being dramatically dragged away to be burned alive, she's like, wait a minute, hold on. Hold on, I have a little something for you, can, can you send this over to Judah and see if he recognizes, if he can identify any of these 
items. This is a moment of high drama. I don't know if you can imagine this right now, this woman being dragged off to be burned and this old patriarch thinking he's about to have finally get this woman out of his life forever. And instead, he ends up with a little packet which has all of his personal effects in it. His identity has been exposed. The double standard he's been living has been revealed, and his failure to do justice to his daughter-in-law has been made public. This is a humbling moment for Judah. And in a moment of clarity and humility, he recognizes in verse 26 that she is more righteous than I He has to acknowledge right at the end of this long and sordid tale uh, that this woman has been more righteous than he is. Now, this might seem like a strange statement to us considering that Tamar is just dressed up as a prostitute, but Judah is referring to his responsibility to care for his daughter-in-law. He had an obligation to care for this woman who was in a vulnerable place, right? The word Righteous here is the word sadak. It's the word justice or righteousness in the Old Testament. And, you know, Judah recognizes he absolutely blew it in his responsibility to give justice, to give due, treat um, Tamar in the right way. In this regard, she has been more righteous in pursuing an heir in accordance with the laws of Leverite marriage than he has. Of course, this is a really messy situation, right? If you're looking for a simple morality lesson here, you're going to be out of luck, right? This is not the Bible saying, yeah, you know, if things get rough, just dress up as a prostitute and fix all your problems, right? That's, that's not what's going, that's not the moral of the story. If you're looking for morals here, like just do whatever you want. That, that's not what we're talking about here, right? Uh, neither ruining your daughter-in-law's life or engaging in prostitution are exactly moral options, right? This is a desperate situation. This is a worst case kind of scenario. This is, nobody got it right in this situation Kind of situation, to use that word twice, sorry. (laughs) Once again, (laughs) I hope you're never put in a desperate position like this and never have to make these kind of decisions, right? No one wants to be in a situation like this, but we live in a fallen world where sometimes we're put in impossible situations, right? Where there are no right answers. It's just wrong because the world we're living living in is broken, Uh, But for those who have been put in desperate situations, this story highlights the importance of both justice and grace. It highlights God's heart for the widow, the orphan, the refugee, and this story obviously focuses on the rights of widows and the responsibilities of those entrusted to care for them. It exposes and challenges the double standards that existed in the ancient Near East and in our culture today, right? That men can kind of go do whatever they are. Boys will be boys, but women on the other hand, you know, are held to a different standard. Judah, in this story, becomes the laughingstock of this community for his unwillingness to do right by his daughter-in-law. But Tamar is vindicated for her desperate, if unethical and unorthodox, plan to seek justice. And both are ultimately recipients of God's amazing Grace. We don't have time to trace out Judah's story and how God uses this episode in his life to humble him, but this becomes the decisive turning point in Judah's life, the moment where he finally understands his lack of righteousness and his need for God's grace. It puts his life on an entirely different trajectory. And as you follow the narrative in Genesis up through Genesis 44, you see that this man has been changed by this 
publicly humbling situation, right? Sometimes the very best thing that could happen to us is, right, for our most embarrassing secret sins to just be put up on a screen for everyone to see because we can't hide, we can't run, we can't fake it till we make it anymore. We've got to be honest about who we are and what we've done. And in those places, we finally can experience the grace of God. So how does this story end for Tamar? The narrative narrator wants us to see that she's able to get pregnant and have a future. In fact, she gets a double blessing. I love that in the text here. And so as we're reading along here, in verse 24, after three months, let's see here, never up, not in 24, flipping it over here to 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out her hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread in his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And he said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hands, and his name was Zerah. And so Tamar gets not just one child. She gets two child. She gets twins in her womb to be able to care for her in the future. While family reunions must have been really awkward, (laughs) she was able to be taken care of, right? She's no longer destitute. Her sons will receive the inheritance as Judah's firstborn. Um, They'll keep their portion of land and the family, and these sons will eventually be able to provide for their aging mother. And most importantly, they'll carry on the family name legacy and promises, right? God's promise in Genesis 12 that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's offspring, through his descendants, through his children. Um, And Tamar is now going to be in that very line, that very line of the Messiah. Commentators debate to what extent a Canaanite woman would have been aware of these great promises. It didn't seem like Judah was like you know, really telling her a lot about his wonderful religious heritage and background. It seems like he was more intent on just kind of partying and living life with the Canaanites. Um, but uh, the 18th century preacher John Wesley gives her the benefit of the doubt. I'm sympathetic. He says this. He says, She believed the promise made to Abraham and his seed, particularly that of the Messiah, and was therefore desirous to have a child by one of that family that she might have the honor or at least stand fair for the honor of being the mother of the Messiah. I I think that's a beautiful, beautiful story, uh, a beautiful narrative arc that we could pursue. Like Rahab and Ruth, she forsakes her own people to be a part of the people of God. And Whether she fully grasped these promises or not, her willingness to stay in the family of promise, even when they shamefully mistreated her, meant that she would not only have twins who were part of the family of God, she would be one of the mothers of Jesus, the Messiah. That's the beautiful narrative arc of this story that we trace. She would be included in the long line of the one who would come to hold God's justice at the cost of, of his own life so that he could extend grace to desperate and lost people like Tamar and Judah and like you and I. So what are some takeaways from this story? What could we learn from it? Again, there's no straightforward uh, morals here. We have to do a little discerning interpretation. Uh, um, Perhaps uh, the first thing I would note, you've already seen 
this in your own life and give testament, how God takes broken circumstances and makes beautiful things out of that. Perhaps you've already lived long enough to see how God has used some of the broken pieces of your story to actually be a part of what God is doing in the world. And perhaps you'll even have an opportunity this holiday season to testify to that, to share how some of those broken pieces in your story are actually part of God's beautiful plan of redemption. And so there's some opportunities there, right, to not just share how wonderful it is to to walk with Jesus and how happy it is to be a Christian and how, how wonderful life is all the time for Christians, but actually an opportunity to share God's grace in the midst of your weakness and the brokenness, to be a little more vulnerable than we might always be. And, and of course, the, with safe people being the probably necessary parameters you should put on that. Uh, perhaps you're where, but perhaps you're where Tamar is at, wondering what is God doing in all of this suffering, right? How could God possibly bring any good out of this evil? This story teaches us to cling to the goodness of God, even when we can't see how things are going to work out. I love how uh, John Piper has said this. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three. That's certainly Tamar's situation, right? She's like, what on earth is this sordid situation? I've lost husband and now father-in-law and prostitute. Like, what on earth could possibly be happening? And here we are 2,000 years later uh, looking at her name in the lineage of the Messiah, the one who came to fix all the broken things in this world including her own situation, right? Suffering presents us an opportunity, right, to to bring these painful experiences to God, recognizing that we don't know what he's doing all of the time. And so we have opportunities to just prayerfully hold out the painful places in our hearts and in our lives and stories to Jesus, to, to set aside sacred time and space. And you may need to do that this holiday season to actually hold these difficult parts of our lives out before um, God, maybe you need to recruit a friend to walk alongside of you, right? Nothing is worse than living with the weight of suffering and trauma on your own, to be alone in the midst of suffering, right? You need trusted people to come alongside, right? Shame thrives in the darkness. It shames, uh, shame thrives when you're alone, when you're by yourself. You need people to walk alongside. And if you've suffered anything like Tamar, right, you may need professional counseling. You may need to get real professional help in a circumstance like this. Uh, Finally, we get an opportunity to listen to the stories of people whose lives look maybe like Tamar or Judah this holiday season. Maybe you're going to be rubbing elbows with people that have lived a little bit rougher lives than you. Maybe you haven't had the privileges you've had. Maybe you haven't had the benefits that you've had, and you're going to be walking alongside them. You're going to be in close proximity to them. I was Strangely enough, in the checkout line at DNW this last week, just picking up some milk, and like this dude is like sharing about his like struggles with like domestic violence, and like we're in the checkout line for like two minutes, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy has no one to talk about, like his run-ins with the law, you know, difficult relationships with roommates and violence, and I'm like, man, people need some. People are desperate for people to listen um, to them, and so I would just. Um, encourage you with the opportunity for incarnational listening, right? To, to enter people's worlds, to hear their story and point them to the hope that we have 
in Jesus. We've got an opportunity to listen well. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Christians were known for people that just listen well to other people, hear their stories, walk with them through their pain, process the suffering that they feel in their lives. What a beautiful gift that would be as well. And you, you can tell them the good news as well, but, but do, some, do some listening first. So how does God make beautiful things out of our broken stories? He does it through, ultimately, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we can't understand or make sense of the tragic moments in our own lives, we're invited to look not at our past or present circumstances, but to the cross where God took the worst thing that happened in human history and turned it to good, where he brought life out of death, glory out of shame, grace out of guilt and, con- and condemnation. Oh, that we'd be a church where broken people can find uh, the hope of the gospel and that this Advent season would highlight how God takes our broken stories and makes something beautiful out of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have included these broken stories like Tamar's and Judah's um, and so that we recognize that we don't have to come all cleaned up with it all figured out with our lives all together. In fact, um, you give us these stories, God, to recognize that we can come just as we are with all of our brokenness and pain and suffering. God, and we can just lay them here at the foot of the cross. And so we, have, we thank you for the opportunity to do that this morning. We thank you for the beautiful hope of the gospel, how the light shines even more brightly in uh, the darkness. And so I pray this Advent season, um, yeah, we have so many opportunities to celebrate how God is working and moving as he steps down into the darkness to rescue and redeem. And we pray you get all the glory through all the stories of, of work you're doing in our lives, in the life of our church, and in the lives of those people that we will have an opportunity to minister to this holiday season. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.